Uh, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Um, now, there are certain texts that any sort of a, a, a preacher, minister, uh, theologian, elder, deacon, whatever, there are certain texts that somebody comes to and it's easier for them to preach than others. Um, this, this text is actually not one for me. It's something that I've heard a lot of bad interpretations on, and so that has colored it. So in my mind, I've got a lot of reproofs, and it was really difficult to study this text. So let's pray <laughs> before I go any further. Um, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can worship you both in song and by reading your word and thinking on your word, and I pray that you would conform our hearts, conform our minds to that which glorifies you. Thank you, Lord, again for allowing us to worship you. What a wonderful gift it is. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Matthew chapter 9. Um, like I said, there's texts that... For me, I've got, I can do a lecture uh, very easily on this text, and that is not what I'm here to do today. So what I'm going to uh, ask you to do is to take your preformed opinions about this text, whatever they are, and plead with God that you can have fresh eyes as you look at this situation. Um, that's what I try to do whenever I'm preparing a sermon, is I ask, I ask that the Lord would give me, give me fresh eyes to see the text, to see it for what it, what's happening, what it's doing. Um, and I say whenever. It's not really whenever. It's whenever I'm really struggling, and I realize that I have my biases that are sitting there. So, um, so for this text, um, I'm going to again ask that you plead with God. You pray to yourself to let the Lord have you have fresh eyes. Um, the point, just outright, the point that Jesus is making here is not that he heals people according to their measure of faith. That is not it. Um, if it and, and if that's your understanding, then you're going to have trouble listening to what I have to say, but moreover, you're going to have trouble listening to what Jesus is, is saying in it. Um, but because ultimately Christ is not a vending machine of blessings that you have to insert the right amount of coin that then he miraculously responds to it. Um, and that's the end of my lecture. I'm just going to say something really harsh there and move on. It says in my manuscript, move on. Anyway, <laughs> so um, what we're going to see here in these verses is a Lord who provides grace to the undeserving and moreover to the desperate. So... Let's read our verses for today. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, if, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. 
And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by, by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This is the word of the Lord. So moving through, there's three stages of the drama. And I, I feel like a broken record, because it seems like I always have three points, three stages of drama. Um, I'm, I'm not aiming for it. But there's three stages of the drama. The first thing we run into is, is what I'm calling the desperate father. Um, when we read Matthew's account of this, we kind of only get the bare bone facts. We find out that this is a guy, or that this is a this is a ruler. Well, let's move through them. So, um, if we read the accounts in Mark five and Luke eight, we actually can fill in some details here. When Matthew uses the word ruler, so fact number one, um, Jesus is still with the Pharisees. Backtracking, sorry. Jesus is still with the Pharisees at this point. We went over the last two weeks. We had, we had uh, Jesus calling Matthew, and he comes, and Matthew throws him this banquet, and they invite all these tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees get all upset. Why is, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And then after Jesus answers that, saying that, say, saying that uh, the healthy have no need of a physician, after he answers that, um, the Pharisees potentially rise up the apostles of John the Baptist, and then John the Baptist's disciples say, say hey, how come, how come we fast, the Pharisees fast, and you guys don't fast? It's not fair. It's not fair that that happens. And Jesus answers that, and he says, hey, how can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So, so those are the two things that just happened. So Jesus is still with these critical Pharisees, and then, and then this ruler comes in. Well, ruler, what, what does ruler mean? Was it, was it 12 inches? Was it a yard? It was a bad joke, really bad joke. But what, is he, what does it mean by ruler? When we read ruler in Matthew's gospel, it's, it just says ruler. It just says somebody who rules. But if we turn to Mark 5 and Luke 8, we find out that this ruler actually has a name. His name is Jairus. And Jairus is not just a ruler, he's a ruler of the synagogue, the local synagogue in Capernaum. So he's walking in while, while people who he works over, he rules over, are criticizing Jesus and comes and pleads for his help. That would, that, that, imagine being a Pharisee, right? You're sitting here, you're chastising this teacher because you think he's not being truthful, and then your own boss walks in and falls on his knees and pleads for help. Uh, I mean, he's the, he's, he's the boss over Capernaum. This is Jesus' hometown, or not hometown, but his ministry town in Capernaum. He, they've all seen what Jesus has done. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen, seen him heal people. They've, they're going to see him uh, bring, bring sight to the blind. They've seen all this. And they are chastising him, saying, hey, he's violating the law. He's not doing what's right. And then their own boss comes in, falls on his knees, and pleads for help. I don't know how to describe that. It would be like, like let's say, let's say you worked for Walmart, right? And uh, and you're standing outside raising heck for uh, for Fred Meyer, right? You've got picket signs. You're shouting, you know, don't shop here, shop at Walmart. And then your own boss walks in and goes, hey guys, and just goes in and shops at Fred Meyer instead of Walmart. 
Now, I doubt any of you are going to like do that. That's kind of a weird situation, but it's essentially what the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to ruin Jesus's ministry, his, his business, if you will, and then the boss comes in and asks for help from him. So fact number one, Jesus is still with the Pharisees, and they're being critical of him, um, and then their own boss comes in and asks for help. And fact number two, Jairus comes in and pays honor to Jesus. Uh, if you have a King James Version, you'll actually read that Jairus comes in and worships Jesus. That is uh, a possible translation, probably not the best, but it's not anything to knock on the, the, the King James Version. Uh, grammatically, the, the act of what the Greek word would be proskuneo, right? The act of that is to fall prostrate. It also means to kneel down before a king. It doesn't always mean worship. Um, and in this, it would be worship, like if you did a literal translation, you translated worship, it would be worships, uh, worships to him, which you would usually put in terms of kneel. But regardless, what we can take away, whether worship or, or, or kneeling down, this guy's honoring Jesus. Uh-oh. They hate Jesus. And, and so Jairus is honoring Jesus. And fact number three, Jairus' daughter has, has, has died. Now, if we open to Luke 8 or Matthew 5, we find out that, he, that, that Jairus' daughter is about to die. And some people have posed that as an interpretive challenge. That's the only reason I bring it up is because some people have said, hey, the Gospels don't agree, right? Matthew's off on the wing here. He says that, that Jairus' daughter has died. But if you read Mark 5 and Luke 8, it's that she's at the point of death. Have you guys ever been with someone as they died? What happens? They, their breathing becomes erratic. They're completely unresponsive. You can poke them. You can scream at them. You can clash cymbals in front of them, and they're not doing anything. We can imagine that even if Jairus came and said, my daughter's just died, he's, he's, he's meaning that his daughter is dying. I mean, he's waited until this last moment. He didn't go to Jesus when she started getting sick, whatever the symptoms were, right when she got injured. He went to Jesus at the last possible moment. We know that Jairus is desperate. Desperate enough to even go to the guy that your office is complaining about. Just come, he says. Just come. Just come. Just come with me. Lay your hand on her and she's going to live. And I really have problems imagining this situation without tears welling up in my eyes, which is why my voice is sounding all weird. To wait for the last possible moment of desperation, running to the guy that you should, by every account, hate, and ask for his aid, knowing, trusting, believing with every fiber of your being that he's going to help. Jairus was desperate. He didn't, he didn't wait till that night to go to Jesus in secret like Nicodemus does in John chapter 3. No, he gets to the point where he just can't wait any longer and he needs help. And that desperation, by the way, is how we all have to run to Christ. God is gracious, is he not, to bring us all to that point of desperation where truly, if we did, were not desperate enough to cry out to him for salvation, we never would have. 
God works in us, like Jairus, to bring us to the point where we go, nothing else will do it, only Jesus. And I want to acknowledge, looking at all of you, frankly, that, that I know that you have unanswered prayers. We've talked about this in Matthew chapter 5. You've gone to Jesus desperate, pleading for help, and Jesus didn't answer the way you wanted. And I want to just say that Jesus' ministry on earth, when he was here on earth, he did these things to demonstrate that he could. Jesus does not do the exact same things now that he did then, just like he did not do the exact same things in his earthly ministry as he did at the creation of the world or during the kingdom of Israel or during the, the, the exilic period. God has always worked differently even though he never changes. So now here we are in this current dispensation of grace. This, this, under the covenant of grace, we stand... And God doesn't always answer our prayers. So what I'm going to tell you right now, as a pastor, as, as, as many of your pastors, do not blame yourself when God does not answer your prayers. Do not blame God either. But look forward to the day that all your desperate pleas are actually answered. I'll come back to that. But God heard you. Christ has compassion on you. He will answer. Don't be overcome with despair, friends, but instead take heart in the fact that Jesus hears it all. Now moving to the next section of desperation, because that's really what this text is trying to show us, is these, the desperation of these two individuals. We have this woman, um, who, who Jesus shows compassion on. Uh, Jesus, again, shows compassion on Jairus, right? He rises and follows. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't argue. He doesn't say, like, well, man, you, <laughs> you may be faithful now, but you, you were pretty mean last week, and I don't think I'm going to do it. I don't think I'm going to go with you. Jesus doesn't do that. No, he gets up and he goes with this, this desperate dad. And then they get interrupted en route. It's like a car accident. It's like when you're trying to get somewhere on time and there's a rollover or something and it slows you down. This, if, I, if, I were, if I were Jairus at this point, I probably would be panicking because I'd be trying to rush Jesus back. But just to add some more color to the situation, if, again, if we go to Mark 5 or Luke 8, either of the other Gospels that include this, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd find that the crowds are actually pressing into Jesus. We don't know if they're if they're if it's just like a busy market day. Maybe there was a really good sale at the bird market. We don't know, but it could be a really busy market day, or maybe they wanted to see what Jesus was going to do. Maybe it's the crowds that were in the 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 feast and they go with Jesus. But we don't know that. We're not told that. Regardless, in this crowd is a singular woman who suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years. Now, this discharge, by the way, I once got told was a brain hemorrhage. It's probably not. Uh, it would have been a particularly feminine problem. Um, and she spent all of her money trying to resolve this issue. Luke 8.43 says that this woman had spent all her living on physicians and she could not be healed by anyone. All her money gone. 
Mark actually even gives us an even graver picture of this woman, saying, uh, saying that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. Can you imagine that situation? You're sick. You need help. In this case, she's not even allowed into a synagogue. She can't sit under God's teaching. So she spends all of her money trying to get better, and instead she gets worse and worse and worse. Here is a woman who, as one commentator put it, is as good as dead. She was permanently, constantly, ritually unclean, and had apparently been in so much pain that Matthew says that she had suffered from this discharge. And then Mark confirms that, uh, uh, that even the work of the doctors on her had caused her suffering as well. This woman is financially destitute. She's not able to be married because of her problem. And if she is married, then her husband's probably not even taking care of her because of this issue. Nobody's willing to take care of her. Financially destitute. Nobody wants to care for her. And then suddenly, by the grace of God, she sees her way out. She sees Jesus walking down the street. She sees this crowd of people. And she thinks to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. So she presses into this crowd with every bit of power she has, which, by the way, she's not supposed to touch people. She's pressing into this crowd. She's pushing her way through, just trying to touch the hem of Jesus' uh, his garment. Not a cloak, but his garment. Much like Jairus, this woman is desperate. But she's also sure that Jesus is the only one that can help her. Also like Jairus. That Christ is the only one who can care for her. So she reaches out into the crowd, grabs Jesus' robe, and just like that, her hope is made real. Her, her discharge dries up. She, she's no longer uh, suffering the way that she was. Her pain is gone. And can you imagine her relief? I mean, in many ways, I can't. But I, I've had headaches, man, where I'm broken down and I can't see straight and I pop ibuprofen and then all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I can breathe. And that's only a headache. This woman had suffered for 12 years. And, and what does she do? She doesn't jump up and down for joy. She doesn't, you know, praise God. She doesn't start throwing banners in the air or go buy fireworks or any. She doesn't do any of that. What does she do? She tries to shrink back into the crowd. She tries to disappear. Matthew's wording doesn't quite show the drama as much as Luke and Mark. Uh, just to read Mark 5:30 to 32, Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? I love that. I love that question. Just, are you an idiot? <laughs> like probably 50 people in the last five seconds. And Jesus looked around to see who had done it. So here's Jesus, and he knows who touched him because God's not, not, God's not blind to whom he helps. But he's, he's calling out into the crowd, who touched me? He knows, he knows that this woman knows what she did. 
And in Luke 8, 47, uh, Luke writes, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, Jesus looks right at her. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Wow. Why did she want to hide in the first place, do you think? Why did she shrink back into the crowd? It's an important question. Perhaps it was because of the nature of her issue. But, uh, but ultimately, she just wanted to hide her intention. She wanted, she wanted to hide her action, but Jesus didn't let her. Have you ever been in a situation where you have just wanted to hide your faith for whatever reason? Maybe you've just wanted to hide it in a conversation, and you feel welling up in you that just <laughs> insatiable desire to just blurt out whatever it is you need to say, whatever, whatever you need to remind a person of. And here's Jesus doing that to her, not letting her shrink back, not letting her hide. Perhaps maybe this woman hadn't even thought of her hope as faith. But that's what Jesus does when he responds to her. He looks at her and he says, take heart, be encouraged, be of good courage, King James Version, Carl. Be of good courage. Um, and then he says, so he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And I can't imagine what, what snapped in her mind at that point. Here she is on her knees saying, I had this problem. I've been suffering with this problem. I've spent all my money on this problem. And I knew that if I touched your garment, I would be made well. And, and, and I am. And I am. I touched your garment. And that happened. Maybe she's embarrassed. Maybe she's, she's broken down. And Jesus says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Whatever she saw, whatever she felt in her desperation was now declared faith. Maybe, maybe in our own situations, when we came to Christ, we didn't really see it as faith. Maybe we saw it as hope. Maybe we, maybe we saw it as a want to be forgiven of our sin. Maybe we, we saw it as an understanding of the gospel message. Whatever we want to use to describe it, that desperation that brings us to knowledge and, and, and assent of that desire of Jesus being the satisfaction, that's faith, so says Jesus here. When we turn to Christ, whether we approach him and acknowledge him before others, or we're forced by his grace to acknowledge him before others, it's faith. And Jesus delights in it. So Jairus and this woman, honestly, as I was thinking about it and as I was digging into it, there are two contrasting ways of faith. Uh, Jairus goes to Jesus publicly in front of his coworkers who are probably going to make fun of him or hate him for what he does. And then this woman tries to come in secret, tries to sneak up. One is bold and loud and right in, right in Jesus' face, and the other one tries to sneak up behind and grab onto, grab onto her deliverance without anybody noticing. 
But even though they're contrasting in their, in their intent and their actions, Christ answers them both with sheer compassion. And that's the, that's the one thing I want you to remember, is that whether you come to Christ loudly, boldly, which, I mean, you guys, you guys have all met that one Christian who's like a bull in, the, in a china shop. Uh, they, they come in and they're clanging everything, saying, saying how much they love Jesus. And then there's people like me that are sitting in the corner reading a book that are slowly putting their earbuds in to try and ignore the noise. However you run to Christ, that's faith. Whenever you know that Jesus is the only answer your, to your desperate plea, that's faith. Now, moving to the last bit, so we've got the desperate father, we've got the desperate woman, and then we've got the risen girl. We've seen Jesus respond to the desperation of the woman, but remember, her desperation interrupts the father's desperation, Jairus's desperation. So, so what happened to Jairus? Well, we, we read it, but let's, let's go back to it. We've got this funeral service, which, by the way, Funeral services now where you wear the black veil and you're all somber and quiet. You've got the one poor soul that's crying in the corner that everybody hears because everybody else is well composed and quiet. That is not the way that Jewish funerals worked. The way that this, the, their culture did funeral was with wailing and parades and they'd come outside and they'd play these dirges. Do you guys know what a dirge is? It's a, it's, it's a really sad song. They'd play these sad songs, and everybody in the town knew that somebody had died. You may as well have been walking around with a megaphone, right, announcing the death of your loved one. So Jesus, with his clear and unfiltered compassion on Jairus, continues on the way. They come up to this funeral. It's loud. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's going a little crazy, which honestly, if you ever just... Uh, just if you're on YouTube, search New Orleans Funeral. The, the folks from Nolens know how to do dirges, and they know how to do um, parade, parade things. And it's, it's very similar, it's different, but at least it's a modern-day adaptation. Anyway, so they come up on this really loud funeral, and, uh, and, and Jairus, we have no idea what's carrying Jairus, right? Maybe, maybe he's pulling at Jesus, come on, come on, come on. Or maybe he's, he's suffering and every step is, is like the most agonizing extension of, your, of his muscles. Maybe he sees the funeral and he just falls in hopelessness. Maybe she was almost at the point of death when he left, and then he comes and now for sure she's dead. His desperation at that point, probably turned to despair. And we don't, know, we don't know what carried him, but we know how Jesus responded. He comes up to this funeral. He says, go away, <laughs> which I think is great. Be gone. Get out of here. For the girl is not dead but sleeping. Now, when Jesus says these words, he's not actually saying that these people misdiagnosed her condition. Uh, he's not actually saying that, that she was literally asleep. He's meaning that he's going to wake her up. And death throughout every culture has been described as sleeping. Like, that's, that's, that's nothing, uh, nothing, nothing unheard of. Um, uh, one, one theologian once put it that, uh, that, that, that death is like eternal sleep, and sleep 
is like little death. Because you're dead to the world. Anyway, I, I, but, but every culture has kind of understood that like death is a form of sleeping. They look like they're sleeping. But the crowds respond to Jesus' go away by laughing at him. And maybe they thought that Jesus wasn't as smart as he thought he was, right? She's a corpse, man. Like, you're too late. Or maybe they were laughing because they knew the dead couldn't be woken up. But they leave. They get put out, right? Only Jairus and a few of the apostles are with him, as Luke records. Jesus walks over to the girl. And then Mark, Mark is more clear on what Jesus said here. Mark in Mark 5, 41 to 43 says this. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which in Aramaic uh, means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So what did Jesus just do? What does Jesus do? How is he showing his messianic, his, his, his Christness, his kingship over, over all creation, being God and sovereign ruler over all the earth? What did he just do? He showed that he had power over death, something only God has, raising this corpse of a girl back to life. But he also shows that Jairus' faith in him was not misplaced. Have you ever felt like your faith in Christ is misplaced? Have you ever felt like maybe, maybe you made a mistake by saying you're a Christian, by being a Christian, by going to church, by, by worshiping God? Have you ever felt like it was a mistake? I wonder if Jairus felt like it was a mistake, calling on Jesus, saying, hey, you lay your hands on her, and she'll be well. And maybe in the time back, how many doubts went through his head? Did I go, did I do, go to the wrong person? Did I do the wrong thing? Am I going to get kicked out of the synagogue? Am I going to get fired? How many possible doubts would you have in that situation? I'd have a lot. Have you ever felt like your faith in Christ is misplaced? Listen, this story, both of these stories should illustrate to us with absolute clarity that one day Jesus will make all of our faith sight. One day, there will no longer be any of this doubt stuff that circulates in us, but right now we're here. And so we need to look forward. We need to remember that, that, that Jesus is going to culminate. He's going to culminate all of his plans. It's going to be a new heavens and new earth. It starts in Revelation 22, uh, 21. Now that I deleted my note, I don't remember. But, but it culminates. It, it, it happens. Everything that Jesus promises, his power over death, his deliverance from sin, is eternally promised and eternally culminated. These two moments show that that's going to happen. Now, you have to also remember that this was a temporary healing. What happened to Jairus' daughter? Well, one day she died. I can guarantee it. What happened to the woman who, uh, who had the hemorrhage? Oh, one day she died. I can guarantee that. Imagine how famous she'd be if she was still alive. 
But Jesus shows that he can conquer death and disease and illness over and over again. Why? Because on his earthly reign, when he was here on earth, he wanted to show that, that, that he is truly who he said he was. And whatever wound you and I have, whatever suffering or struggle we have, it will go away one day. One day, one glorious and wonderful day. But for now, we need to be made desperate. Desperate like these two, to run to Christ, to ask for the, to ask for the stupid, to ask for the crazy, to ask for whatever we truly need. And however you go to him, whether you go into your prayer closet, lock the door, light a candle, and scream at the wall, or whether you go out on the street and, and, and or, or, well, more likely now, you would text all your friends and say, pray for me. Uh, however you go to Christ, with whatever intensity you go to him, is not the point. The point is that by going to him in your desperation, you have faith in him. If you do not go to him in your time in desperation, that shows a lacking of faith. And that's something that you need to desperately pray over. But loud and large faith will be rewarded just like quiet and weak faith. Both are true. Therefore, go to Christ with however much strength you have in your faith, with absolute desperation like these two, remembering that Jesus answered these two, he will answer you as well. Whatever you're desperate for, seek relief in Christ alone, friends. He's the only one that could atone for your sin, and he's the only one that can soothe your aching soul. Let's pray and sing our last song. Lord, I remember that act of desperation that made me cry out to you for salvation. I remember that, that feeling of desperation that has made me cry out to you for countless things. I pray for that. I pray for that because even though it doesn't feel good at the time, whatever suffering I have, whatever struggle I'm going through, Lord... It brought me closer to you. You've shown me by, by not just answering my prayers, but also by not answering my prayers, how worthy you are of my worship. You are good no matter what. You are compassionate no matter what. So please encourage our hearts, Lord. Help us this week to focus on you, to love you, and to adore you. You're a good father. Thank you for showing such compassion in your word that we can take hope for today's struggles. In Jesus' name, amen. Whatever suffering you're going through that's bringing you to despair, to desperation, whatever problem you're encountering now, may it bring you to a closer and more vibrant uh, delight in the Lord. May he work his plans for you however he sees fit, and may you be comforted with his goodness. Go in peace, saints, and potluck. Go enjoy. It smells delicious, and my stomach is growling.